securing critical infrastructure, the regulatory versus the practical, a special InnovationOz.com podcast series brought to you by Sentinel One. The emergence of the critical infrastructure legislation is driving protection to the top of the agenda for many Australian businesses as they grapple to improve their cybersecurity posture. Compounding this challenge is the disconnect between the hype around cyber threats and a practical understanding of what to do at the organisational level. In this podcast series, we speak to independent experts who will step away from the technical and focus on the practicalities of the new legislation. Welcome to the changing face of critical infrastructure in Australia, part of Securing Critical Infrastructure, the Regulatory versus the Practical podcast series. Today with me, I have Dr. Huon Curtis, who's a Senior Research Fellow, Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University, and Jason Durden, Sentinel One's Regional Director for Australia and New Zealand. Welcome to both of you. Great to be here. Thanks, Barry. Now, I might start with you, Huon. You have worked in strategic policy for a number of years across various organisations, right at a time where critical infrastructure has really been pulled into focus from a national security perspective as well as, you know, a cybersecurity uh, challenge for organisations. At the Tech Policy Design Centre, can you give me a little bit of background on your role and maybe the, the centre itself and its function? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is that there's a lot of cliches thrown around in the world of national security. And, uh, you know, some of these are like the world is more complex and uncertain. Uh, the nature of the threat environment has changed. We're facing climate, cyber threats, technological change, geopolitical and personal threats. Um, and these all impact our critical systems. And, why a, a, a strategic unit like the Tech Policy Design Centre exists is to grapple with that uncertainty, to uncover some of that those cliches and to help with that conceptualisation. But the goal in this isn't just to say um, the world is complex, we know that. And what we need to do is to seek uh, precision in the language that we use about these problems because the words that we use actually have regulatory effects. Um, and, the, and also they have effects on how it is that sit, the citizenry conducts their lives. So one project that I'm working on at the moment is about risk and resilience in the telecommunications sector. So one of the critical infrastructure uh, sectors. And this question of how we improve resilience uh, is the, the, the question I'm grappling, grappling with. The concept of resilience is thrown around a lot, um, often in a way that doesn't necessarily have uh, a clear meaning. Um, it might be used in some context to shift responsibility away from away from government, you know, or, or away from industry, because it it gives, uh, you know, if if it's not seen as a personal responsibility, it's your fault that you 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 are. Uh, built your house in the flood zone. You know, we, we gave you the best inf information, but nonetheless, you proceeded. And, and uh, so the problem is you, it can be used to shift, shift the burden uh, elsewhere. But we've seen it, and we've seen it used much more in this national security context, um, particularly in the last 15 years. Um, in this context, you know, there's been a, a tendency to have these broad aims, national resilience, uh, to build a resilient country. But unpacking exactly, precisely what that means is, I think, the task that I'm, I'm actually involved with at the moment. 
it's clear to me that what we include in that uh, picture and then what, we, what we're in fact trying to measure and the goals that we're trying to reach are um, often uh, unclear across the sector. People use it in, in different ways. Um, and the, the, I think the other thing is that the threat picture, the, the kinds of challenges that we're facing uh, are, also, are also shifting. So in the telecommunications space, uh, you know, we're not just thinking about Optus and Telstra. Now we're thinking about a whole lot of in- infrastructure needs that go into the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the nature of, te- of tech, of technology of the, 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 the sector. So the problem space is changing how operators uh, are connected in. Uh, um, it looks, looks very different. Now the, the, the kind of consumer demands that we're facing have, have shifted. And there's also the rising, um, influence of the internet and how the internet is changing the, uh, the, the space of telecommunication. We're seeing the more kind of internetization of, uh, telecommunication. And behind all this, you know, and as Jason will, will, will talk about, I'm sure, uh, we've got these communications and communication systems that sit behind our pharmaceutical systems, our manufacturing systems. Um, and, uh, you know, they're all tied together by subsea cables, by data storage capabilities. So that's where I think the, the cyber dimension comes in. Um, but when we think about infrastructure, it's not just the physical assets anymore. It's, it's also about the computer systems, the data systems, where they are located. And so suddenly we've got this very big problem space where initially we might have just thought, Oh, we'll just pick up a, a phone call and it's a phone and then it's, um, from a copper wire to to uh, uh, through an exchange to another, to another household, but actually the the system is um greatly changed now. There's a few things you said there that I want to bring you in on, Jason. One is like language and interpretation, and I think that's something that you'll probably see in when you're talking both government and private sector around interpretation of the critical infrastructure legislation and uh, you and you alluded to the complexity and the matrixes and the interdependency of lots of different players um that how are your the how are people you're talking to understanding one how legislation relates to them and how they're approaching you know rising to the challenge of making sure their organizations are protected when it comes to critical infrastructure yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of that comes down to the type of organisation and the maturity curve that they're on. So, uh, you know, if you think about critical infrastructure, historically has meant power, water, telecommunications. You know, the Critical Infrastructure Act and legislation now covers things like uh, food supply and, and other types of industries which weren't necessarily a traditional critical infrastructure um, type of organisation. So I think... If you went to a more traditional style organization, such as a, a power company, a water company, uh, oil and gas, so on and so forth, um, the maturity level is is much greater there, right? Because they've been uh, adhering to a lot of these policies and requirements for some time versus in a maybe a newer class uh, uh, type of organization uh really starting, not necessarily starting their security journey, but starting their security journey in the context of being critical infrastructure because there are a lot more stringent requirements for that. So I think um, the interpretation still is very industry dependent. So it's difficult to have the same requirements in a power company versus a 
a supermarket, for example, or a food delivery or food supply or a healthcare organization. However, the principles of managing the security program uh, are somewhat the same, right? There's just technical elements which are different. So I think initially there was some interpretation challenges of, you know, do we need to adhere to the same levels of a power company uh, or a telco? And I think that that is now uh, subsided. I think it's become more understood as these new uh, industries are coming into that act. And I think what we try and um, do as a, as a provider of tools and services and things that we do with our clients uh, is really try and align our customer needs to standardized frameworks like the NIST cybersecurity framework, which adheres to a lot of the legislative uh, requirements of the Critical Infrastructure Act. So I guess the, the summary there is uh, not everybody is going to have the same requirements. However, uh, there are multiple ways to achieve the same the same outcome, and that's what we try and do with, with our customers. Yeah. You just mentioned NIST, which is a, a, I guess an international standard on many levels. I know a lot of the work the Tech Policy Design Centre is you know, engaging with understanding regulatory environments in different regions. The Quad's obviously top of mind you know, in recent weeks. Um, well, how, the Ukraine obviously brought the idea of telco and access to communications and critical infrastructure into sharp focus. How do you see, from a global perspective, um, other countries that really have are in a different place? And what could Australia potentially learn from some of these real and recent um, examples? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think the first thing is when we're thinking about the threat picture, we're not just talking about threat, we're also talking about opportunities. So when we're thinking about the infrastructure systems uh, and, and how to safeguard them, we're not just nailing, trying to nail things down and, and close gates and close doors. Uh, we're thinking about how we can use technology to develop um, opportunity and economic opportunity that, that might come behind that. Um, so, you know, what I think we've learned in recent years is that vulnerabilities are in all systems. That is uh, reality. It's not. Um, it's not something that we should be be scared of. Um, but if we get into the mindset where all we're doing is cataloging vulnerabilities and sources of potential damage, then um, we can actually then fall into uh, a kind of false sense of uh, security and 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 fail to seek. Um, seek innovative opportunities. Um, when we think about these systems, if we don't have an account of, um, of if, if we're exposing ourselves to too little stress um, and we're not seeking to learn from from things and to create new opportunities, um, then we're, we're not actually, uh, you know, fully embracing the the opportunities of the, the the current day. So not just about safeguarding, it's also about um, making sure that we are taking taking risk. Um, I think that's the the two sides of risk. It's not just about locking things down. It is also about getting ourselves into a mindset where we're where um, we're putting outside ourselves out there and, and taking risks. I think about um, international examples like the DARPA uh, model, where that has driven um, uh, research and development uh, uh, in the United States uh, for for many years. They have a criteria where it is reportedly, if they're not having an eighty percent failure rate, then they're not hitting their targets. That kind of mindset is something that needs to be. Um, 
you know, encouraged and adopted in 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 aspects of uh, the Australian innovation ecosystem, um, because I think that is the way to, to drive change. One thing I think that um, we need to get a little bit more over our own timidity about our own innovation successes, because I think there there have been some successes at this, particularly at the state state level. I think about um, initiatives that have come out of been driven out of Service New South Wales that have have used um, citizen data to to try and create digital solutions, and there are certain examples of that now being um, that were kind of incubated within the within the within the state. Uh, within New South Wales and are now being trialled at the the national level, um, there are success stories like that that I think we can we can point to and and try and encourage more of. Um, certainly, I think with the new government, there's been more of a focus on a on on the multiple sides of of creating opportunity that we're not just thinking about. Um, about you know cyber threats in particular, certainly from the cyber minister, from the the minister for home affairs, Claire O'Neill, there's been a clear indication that we are behind in some aspects. There's no denying that. I think setting a goal of being the most cyber secure country by 2030 is a clear indication that that there's more to be done. Um, my colleagues recently here at the Tech Policy Design Centre just uh, wrote a, a piece on ransomware, where one of the recommendations was was that there's a board level statement of of compliance or statement of of what what is actually being done uh, at the at the board level, because it's clear that um, at the director level there's uh, there's still um, complacency about the cyber cyber environment. That said, it's a difficult um, uh, thread to uh, what's the cliche? What uh, the difficult um, needle to, th- to thread for the government to, to, to try and get to get uh, um, the boardrooms of Australia on on um, on board for that for that thing. Um, but then, yeah, uh, not only that, I think across uh, not just the director level, then there's all these uh, these other initiatives that I think are starting to come together. You know, we've seen in the recent budget statement, there's um, activities around around quantum and AI that are trying to in, in, um, inculcate more innovation across uh, across the board, um, as well as the reconstruction fund the national reconstruction fund which is 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 meant to be driving investments in things into critical technologies and some of this stuff i think um you know there's a tendency in australia when we think about um that we resort to some excuses like i think about the university system in particular where where we've got a world-leading uh research sector um in terms of our metrics internationally and in terms of the the kinds of publications the quality of publications that come out but we actually need to think beyond just the discovery value of of uh publications we need to think about some of the commercialization uh aspects and how it is that we um we draw in uh uh commerce and and the and and industry more broadly into the um into the research sector that's also you know, another rationale for why it is that my centre, the Tech Policy Design Centre, exists is to be a conduit between government and industry to do um, to do research in a different way, to bring in um, to bring in different partners to try and drive regulatory and industry outcomes, to drive that overall industry um, innovation agenda in the country. So, in short, you know, like I think dealing with the the comparisons with other countries of course there's there's lessons we can learn um but on the flip side you know there's there's enormous sources of innovation in this in this country and i think what we can learn from um 
from some of the, uh, you know, it, it often doesn't take more than a team of 10 people to, to drive um, innovation in, in different ways. So, just because we're a small country, we should be we should be thinking we thinking we should be thinking big. I think there's some excitement about um, aspects of the the new government's agenda, but there's definitely uh, I think a, a still a way to go in in different areas. Hundred percent, Hewitt. We're talking a lot about the quad at the moment. Um, is that with the specific focus? What are you seeing from a cyber critical infrastructure perspective when we're talking about the quad? I think the newest thing, uh, certainly the, the pandemic has driven a lot of collaboration between the Quad countries. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think firstly, we saw the vaccine diplomacy and collaboration on vaccines. There's been, you know, the, the technology, technological aspect of biotechnology and, and AI that have kind of driven that vaccine revolution. Um, that have then, has then meant that we've been able to, uh, return in some respects to a more normal existence. Um, but, on the, I think what we'll see and what is new in this current statement is, is the, the, uh, software resilience, um, state, statement. There's, uh, the quad partners have developed these joint principles to collectively improve software. And I noticed, um, even today that there's an indication from home affairs, um, I think in the, in upcoming Senate esti- estimates that aspects of the software supply chain will be explored, uh, more fully. So, I think that's something new that will um, will influence how it is because open source software systems drive innovation across uh, across all of our systems, but they're also integral to things like software defined um, networks, you know, including in our satellite systems. So, how it is that code is being uh, developed uh, is going to become. Uh, it's clear that it's going to become more of a a uh, more within view of government in the next next six six to twelve months, and I'm sure Jason has uh, some some uh, some things to add to that. Yeah, I mean we're we're definitely at the forefront, being a provider uh, a of software, but then b um, working to protect organisations who who uh, consume hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of pieces of software in their environment. I mean, a recent example was the three CX. Uh, hack, which was a pretty widespread supply chain uh, supply chain vulnerability hack, didn't necessarily result in um, harm or uh, you know organisations being put in a negative position because it was caught so early on. Uh, you know, there's plenty of information that we we were able to uh, come out with at Sentinel One about that, and I think that's where the benefit of AI and generative AI and machine learning coming into cybersecurity has really been able to help us. Uh, find these things as early as we possibly can. You know, it's, you're never going to have 100% prevention and, uh, you know, stopping of attacks. Uh, however, we can get very close. The ability to then detect quickly, respond and recover and remediate uh, is something that we're focused on as part of our supply chain risk management with, with our customers. And that's where AI, machine learning, generative AI language models, helping customers understand what they should be looking for based on that AI backbone has really shown uh, huge benefits in in uh, achieving that. 100%. There's a few things I wanted to pick up on and, and direct to you, Jason. One of the things like around risk and appetite and change and dyna- you know, a dynamic approach to challenges, there seems to be the cybersecurity industry seems to be in some ways very dynamic and lots of interesting things happening. We have a big, you know, 
there's a large cohort of very you know innovative Australian cyber companies, but then we also find people default to the same kind of fear, uncertainty, doubt, kind of old school approaches. So how do we kind of close the gap where we can get uh, you know some of the basic protections you know reframed in the in the minds of, of businesses particularly, but also government? Yeah, I mean, I think in looping back to Huon's point in the work that the the Tech Design Centre is doing, the, the board statement is a good example of things that we can help to raise, not just, I think the awareness level is there across uh, across the country, I mean, globally that cybersecurity is a is a key priority, uh, however, the, the where it stacks in the priority list I think is the question that's, that's um, still to be answered and I think having more ownership and responsibility at that board level uh, will remove, I guess, the perception that FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt is required to take action, right? And I think that's that's kind of what happens in in uh, the cybersecurity sphere today is um, because a lot of it is not visible unless you have a physical uh, impact, you know, ransomware incident where the devices are encrypted, the data is being leaked on the dark web and you know that the company is in in this fight or flight scenario it's not it's one of those things that you don't know it's a problem until it's in your face kind of thing so a lot of people who are not technology literate or uh aren't in the cybersphere day to day potentially don't appreciate the potential risk until an event happens right and i think uh, the fear mongering has been a way to try and incite or uh a level of engagement to then educate. Now, I don't necessarily believe that's the right way to go about uh, running a security program and educating people, but I think perhaps for a period of time it was necessary whilst the uh, education level around cybersecurity was was lifting. Right, And I think now that we're at, I, I would uh, think that we're at a pretty common understanding that cybersecurity is a problem and cybersecurity is something we need to focus on. Uh, now that we're at that level, I don't think fear, uncertainty, and doubt is the right way to to educate people. Right? I think people understand that this needs to be a priority. So now it's about what are we going to do? Right? What things are we going to implement? What technologies? What processes? What people? What legislation? What policies are we going to implement to continue to raise? And I would echo Huon's uh, statements that I think you know the, the current government is doing a great job at putting that out into the public sphere and making it uh, known that this is a priority for for them, which is naturally having a trickling effect down into the public and private sector. So I think I think we're in a different sphere now. I think maybe the fear-mongering was possibly needed at a certain point in time to enact change and get people interested. It's like any any movement, there needs to be a bit of noise and there needs to be someone making, uh, you know, kind of kicking the dirt up for people to pay attention. We've moved past that now. We're in a we're in a, the opportune moment now where people understand. Let's actually help them, uh, you know, make changes and put put in, put uh, put things in place to achieve the goals that they're trying to do. And I think on that point, Jason, uh, like 
companies are starting to see and consumers definitely consumer behavior is definitely di- driving that change because if you think about the optus hack or the latitude financial hack um the lack of resilience of uh of um an organization then means that they that drives consumer exit from that from that company so securing uh or making uh, these systems more resilient actually is a sign of commercial maturity. So it's, it's a commercial differentiator and then that leads to profitability. So I think that, that those connections after some very high profile, um, activities are starting to, 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 um, to cut through. And certainly on the, on the kind of emergency management, on, um, side of things, you know, we've seen data, data breaches, uh, in Victoria where, um, Emergency management providers have been have had to resort to radio equipment, legacy radio equipment, in order to communicate effectively. So, to respond to to fires and and floods. So, you know, all of these systems, if they're not operating in a in a in a secure or resilient manner, um, then it actually will will impact the kinds of responses that that government can make in in instance of national security and not to you know to draw it too much back into the that Ukraine example. But when we're thinking about um when when there's a possibility of 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 some uh geopolitical events that that may drive um the un well yeah the unanticipated um and then how that hinges upon our on our national infrastructure, then that is a concern. And if 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 at the board level there's not um a commitment to aspects of that um you know the shared goals that we should have as a as a nation then then companies aren't doing their bit and they should be I think we have covered a lot of ground today and I'm going to draw it to a close I think um, coming back to your points Jason that kind of fear uncertainty doubt of kind of pushing towards action teamed with some you know high profile um, you know breaches that we've seen and now kind of entering into a new dawn where we have the you know very clear focus from you know the Australian government looking at our you know friends and allies from a, a cyber perspective and, and a reframing of what critical infrastructure actually means to all of us um, it, I think that would be good to catch up in six months and and see how some of that action has played out but um, I'd like to thank both of you for joining me today uh, dr Huan um, Curtis thank you so much and Jason Durden from Sentinel One. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having us, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Shut up. enjoyed this securing critical infrastructure the regulatory versus the practical podcast brought to you by sentinel one for more keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit sentinel1.com 